Two Geeks and a Marketing Podcast, episode 51, the one about the language of marketing, DJI Pocket 2 gimbal camera, road mics, and the Tomorrow War. Let's get on with the show. Welcome, everyone, to a second year of Two Geeks and a Marketing Podcast. After a little break, we're back to talk about keeping you up to date with the latest news, tech, content, and wisdom from the world of marketing. And my co-host is still a man on a mission to demystify digital marketing. He's the host of the Content Marketing Studio video podcast. Please welcome Mr. Pascal Fintoni. Well, thank you so much. And of course, you've heard from my co-host, a man also on a mission to keep marketing simple, the voice of the marketing and finance podcast and the host of the Roger Vlog video series. I give you Monsieur Roger Edwards. So good to be back with you, Pascal. Now, this is the beginning of September 2021. We have taken a few weeks break over the summer to recharge our batteries to seek out new marketing tech and new civilizations and we are going to be talking about all of that today but pascal shall we get straight into the first segment of the show and that is in the news well, just over a year after being appointed as McDonald's Global Chief Marketing Officer, Alistair Macro has been now appointed as CEO of the UK and Ireland business to, to oversee the running of over 1,300 restaurants. Just 16% of UK customers trust sponsored posts on social media, according to a new survey by Bizarre Voice, compared to the 83% who trust recommendations, reviews and content which are not paid for. Following its exit from the EU, the UK government wants to reform data law and enter a new era of data-driven growth, which might mean, Roger, the end of those annoying cookies and pop-up forms. TikTok is asking its creators to recreate iconic ads of old in its most recent of many campaigns. This is called Remake. So far, brands like Snickers, Skittles and Old Spice have partnered with well-known TikTok creators to produce humorous spoofs of their most famed adverts from years gone by. Mm, I like Skittles. Now, according to the 2021 Advertiser Perceptions Trust report, the percentage of advertisers making spending decisions based on corporate responsibility and brand values has increased more than 20% from a year ago to 82%. In response to dismal financials, Peloton will slash prices across its portfolio, reduced by around 20%. A longer 43-month interest-free financing plan will be introduced for its Bike Plus and Tread products, which equates to approximately £43 per month or $59 per month. Well, LinkedIn is following Twitter and dumping its stories after 12 months, promising a new video experience to be developed later in the year. And finally, Heineken is taking its non-alcoholic beer, Heineken 0.0, to remote locations to show it can be enjoyed alongside active pursuits. The brand is popping up around Ireland to reward thirsty hikers with a freshly poured pint of Heineken 0.0 to enjoy with scenic views. Wow. Yeah. So, Pascal, I think I want to talk to you about LinkedIn stories. Now, interestingly enough, over the four-week period where we've been having a bit of a break, Twitter made the headlines by dropping its story function. And here we are 
Very quickly following up behind them is LinkedIn dumping its stories. Now, personally, I've had a bit of a go at all of these social media platforms over the last year or two for effectively just trying to copy each other and do exactly the same sort of things. And I've often said, well, why why copy everybody else? Why not do something that makes you stand out yourself? And Obviously, Twitter have decided stories don't work in their environment, and now LinkedIn as well. So what do you think of this? Well, it feels like this, you know, the kind of copycat syndrome of, oh, they've got stories, let's put stories. Um, And he kind of asked the question, have they had, you know, the right meetings? Have they done the right kind of due diligence on the audience, the LinkedIn user base, and asking, do you want stories? Would you, what would you use them for? Can we also help you use them better and so on? I was quite uh, an early um, non-adopter of stories on LinkedIn, but I mean, because I kind of saw the signs. And to be honest with you, when they are promising a new video experience, to, I'm thinking, well, it's all about promises with LinkedIn uh, often. And as someone who still to this day, Roger, is not allowed to use LinkedIn Live, video live, <laughs> I, I'm just thinking, well, what is that video experience that you're promising? Because it's so damn simple. Allow people to go live, allow people to, you know, upload short form but long form, but also make your LinkedIn articles where we're going to be embedding those videos work and perform better. So I, I don't, I'm not going to miss stories at all, not just because I wasn't a user, but also because it wasn't what I think the LinkedIn user base was asking for. No, I think you're absolutely right. And and the fact is that stories on LinkedIn, the functionality compared to Instagram stories and Snapchat and TikTok, I guess, just wasn't good enough. It, it, you know, it was a very primitive, very little choice of, of graphics and that sort of thing. So I'm, I'm like you. I will not be sad to see it go. Do you know, you're absolutely right about the whole promising thing with LinkedIn. I mean, they are saying that they will replace it with some new video experience in the future. Now, if that stands out in some way, then all being well. But as you say, if it's just a lame promise that they don't deliver on, then that will be disappointing. And I don't know about you, Pascal, but I find my engagement on LinkedIn at the moment all over the place. Sometimes I'll put a post up and I get absolutely no engagement whatsoever. And then I'll put another post up and that one gets absolutely mobbed with engagement. So they just don't seem to have any consistency in their algorithm at the moment. And whilst we're having a moan about LinkedIn, my complaint is about if I go on my home feed, I see and hear from people that I have little interest and little connection with. And my kind of close allies and, and associates, I rarely see their stuff. I've got to seek it out. As you know, I've got my weekly roundups. Uh, one will be published later on today. And I've got to really seek out and make the effort to find the content published by my kind of first degree uh, connections. I think that's what they, they call them on LinkedIn. And I think LinkedIn's trying to force me to connect with complete strangers by showing, again, posts and contents from people that um, I just don't have that close connection with. I think you're absolutely right. And, and possibly they're, they're matching you up with people who are talking about similar things, thinking that you want to expand your reach in that respect. But actually, it would be quite nice to be able to talk to the people we're already connected with as it is. Mm, absolutely. So... Let's talk about this whole data-driven EU thing that we were talking about there. So we've come out of the EU, Brexit, and the government are saying that they can now reform 
data legislation. Now, let's face it, when GDPR came in, in whenever it was, 2018, I think, you know, there were so many companies panicking about misusing data and we all had to put these cookie notices up on our websites and every single time you go onto a website these days you've got to say that you're happy to give them permission to use this that and the other and and sometimes i don't know about you pascal but especially on news websites if you're using a um a program like um, flipboard because it doesn't actually store the cookies itself every single time you go to a news website, it will you'll get the pop up asking you this, that, and the other, and sometimes you think, oh, for goodness sake, just go away, yes to everything, and and leave me alone. So you know maybe this will be one of the very, 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 very few benefits of Brexit. Yeah, and I, th- I love the term, you know, a new era of data driven growth. So as you are, you know, the custodian of you know management mumbo jumbo, that's a lovely one. You know, a new era. Why? Why not? Data-driven growth. Explain to me how business is going to be satisfied that they're going to have less data about us. That's going to help them grow their businesses. They're going to have to work a little harder on explaining what that sentence means. Now, as a consumer of content like you, I'm getting sick and tired of having to click the reject all option when I go on the website. My preference would be assume from the get-go that everybody's going to not want to essentially for you to have their data but then make an, a clear offer as to the advantages of our data being collected and, and, and gathered. Because otherwise, you know, what, what is that you are uh, promising here, UK government? You know, we, you're going to remove essentially the annoyance factor for content consumer. But what are you offering to business owners like you and I? To, to our customers in terms of what's happening. But um, yeah, I, I mean, to me, it also belongs to what you know, have reported back in the news around the effort, for example, from the EU themselves, but also remember the Australian government fighting back against the likes of Google, Facebook, and so on, particularly around news. So let's make it a watching brief for you and I, and we'll report back in terms of how this progresses. But um, I was very happy with the EU data laws. So are they suggesting, you government suggesting, that they're going to do even better than that? I suspect, Pascal, that the new era of data-driven growth is just another government buzzword, buzzphrase like get Brexit done was, or everything's world-beating when it comes to this government. And unfortunately, experience has suggested that pretty much everything that they touch is anything but world beating so let's not get negative let's talk about tiktok uh i i i mean tiktok is still absolutely um top of the league in terms of uh talking and and buzz and 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 creativity amongst quite a lot of content creators and i just love this idea of asking people to remake classic adverts I think it's lovely because what TikTok has done superbly, um, as much as it was uh, uh, the early years, remember the early days, mocked as it, oh, it's another Snapchat clone, it's this, this and the other. It has been one of the most creative environment, really. And brands, including, as we'll discuss later on today, uh, films are really embracing the community of creators and allowing them to do what they do best. But I love this idea of bringing old and new, and bringing generations of content creators and communicators together as well. 
Yeah, and I'm almost tempted, Pascal, to go away and recreate the Shaken Vac advert. Do you remember that? <laughs> do the Shaken Vac and put the freshness back. Do the Shaken Vac and put the freshness back. When your carpet fells, smells fresh, your room does too. You see, I can remember all the words. So fantastic idea there from TikTok and, and, and also really entertaining to watch what people have put together. So there we have it. That was what was in the news this week. Mm. Pascal, shall we slow things down a little bit now and move on into our content spotlights? In this section of the show, Pascal and I surprise each other with an item of content. Now, it could be an article, it could be a video, a podcast, but whatever it is, it has caught our attention for its relevance to marketing. So, Pascal, what have you got for me this week? So, this week to the virtual table, I'm bringing an article, a very short yet powerful article, Roger. The title is as follows. How to design a profitable branded podcast that doesn't sound like a branded podcast. So a rather long title, but that really got me thinking about this idea of, yes, you know, all those companies wanted to jump on the podcasting bandwagon. You could argue, you and I almost have a mini series on, you know, fools rushing type of, um, you know, content spotlights. Now, the author of this article is Paul Colligan, who's a founder of the podcast partnership and this article will take you minutes to read but will give you uh, leave you thinking about well the, the content for hours if not indeed days because this is all about stopping for a moment and thinking very carefully about why you want to either launch a podcast or start a new series as a brand now the article has three key elements. The first one is called the branded podcast promise. I would even call it the false promise, as you'll see in a moment. Then he's going to share what it's called his model called the podcast gold. Then he shares a recent case study with a company called Fast Mail and how they actually did do a branded podcast that didn't sound like a branded podcast. Now the reality is, Roger. There will be meetings. There has been meetings the whole of last year and this year from brands consumer brands in particular, saying, hey, shall we have a podcast so we can sell more of our stuff? And this is really where Paul talks about the branded podcast promise, this idea of surely if we have a podcast, people will just fall about themselves to quickly listen to it to begin with and then buy our product. And, of course, we know that those types of podcasts, although I've not listened to many, they're probably the worst. It's almost like you know articles uh, that are actually disguised as adverts. It's, it's a bit like a video, frankly. So... Paul is saying, yes, as a brand, you should go consider podcasting for sure, but you need to think it through. And I'm going to share with you my model, the podcast goal, which is the intersection of three key elements, which requires a lot of thinking. I imagine this model being used, Roger, in a meeting situation with the white balls and the post-its and uh, the bean bags and so on, but you better do those things. So the model is really about challenging the concept of branded podcast, but I would say, Roger, you could just model for any form of content, whether it's a blog series, whether it's video, whether it's in it being on TikTok and so on. So think of it as a Venn diagram. Eventually, that's where it will be, and the, the bit in the middle is the podcast goal. So the first and easiest element to discuss as a team are the business goals. The business goals uh, over, as an overall statement for the business, but also the business goals of the podcast. What do you want? What does su success look like? And I would imagine most brands or even personal brands would be able to express that. The second one 
and already becomes my child, that would be your audience interest or, or avatar interest, if you want to go that way, looking at the ideal customer. And this is where yeah, Paul's arguing this is the most difficult because this is where you need to realize that what you find interesting as a brand may not be the same as your audience. And you've got to start to work a lot more on a bit more lateral thinking, a bit more back complementary subjects and themes, and really work hard at that. And because if you do this exercise, Roger, and audience interest equal my product, I think you're missing really what podcast can do for your business. The final element would be engaging content, not just content, not just audio content, but engaging audio content. And the term engaging really should invite you to discuss and explore that for quite some time. So I don't think this is an exercise that will take just minutes uh, or hours. I think a team or an organization could go through this reflection phase for several days indeed until they settle on the podcast, which is the intersection. Now, finally, he gives an example to explain what happens with the benefit of using his model. So he worked with a um, email company called Fastmail, and doing this exercise, you could argue that why don't they do a podcast about email, email marketing, and email practices? That would be relevant and engaging, but would it be what the audience is interested in? And through the exercise, they came up with the theme of the whole purpose of the internet and particularly the complaints about email is about how it makes you feel so emails are seen as an irritant and you are the custodian once again of engaging marketing not irritating um, or enraging marketing so what they settled with with fastmail is a podcast on digital citizenship how do we all of us make the internet a better place and Fastman is going to be essentially the podcast series to discuss it and bring about better practices, including email marketing. And certainly, you have a much richer experience overall for you, the producers, but of course, for the listeners. So here we have it. Paul Colligan, the podcast goal model, intersection of business goals, audience interest, and engaging content. Yeah, I really like that, Pascal. And, you know, again, it's like anything, isn't it? You've got to understand the needs of your audience. You've got to have goals for your content and your marketing activity. And that, that what you've just described there is just another way of getting people to do those things, which, let's face it, quite a lot of people don't bother with. And then, of course, they get upset that they're podcast or whatever it is doesn't actually work. I guess what I would probably have liked to have seen in there as well is the whole idea that if you put together a branded podcast, even if you've done all of what you've said and you've put the goals together and you've got it right, you've got to give it time. You mm. can't expect to put it out there a few episodes later and then expect customers to be absolutely flooding through the door because of it. And we do know that quite a lot of business businesses that do try to go down the branded podcast route usually give up after about six or seven episodes and say things like, well, it didn't work. And they haven't really given it enough time. You know, a lot of podcasts can take many months, maybe six months to get established. And you've got to be in it for that long term to make it work. And indeed, that reminds me of what you say often on this podcast, the idea of don't confuse a communications campaign and strategy with advertising. And I think what Paul has probably had to deal with doing as a consultant for the podcast partnership, this idea of people sat across the, the table or on the Zoom call, 
that was the case, saying, so, you know, we're doing podcasts to sell stuff, yet to, and then suddenly the, the whole mindset is about, it's the same thing as a Facebook advert, isn't it? And God, no, it's not at all. Mm, absolutely right. It's there for the long term, and you've got mm. to treat it as such. So, Pascal, my content spotlight this week, um, you've already alluded to it uh, earlier in the show by talking about my obsession with com complicated language. And this article is from Marketing Week, and the heading, I shall read it out, is The language of marketing is so imprecise as to be almost meaningless. And the article is by J.P. Castlin, and as I say, it was it was in Marketing Week. Now, funnily enough, I've been thinking again a lot about this particular topic. And, and as we come out of lockdown, I'm starting to get more work coming in, more clients talking about simplicity again, which is good. But I've always had this theory, and one day I'll probably have to do some proper research to back this up because I've never actually got the data to show that it's absolutely right. But the gut feel that I have inside from all the companies that I've dealt with proves that this is the case, that if a company has complicated language, and we're talking jargon, management speak, passive sentences, that sort of thing, um, gobbledygook, if they have that sort of language, it's very likely that their products will be complicated as well, that their service will be complicated and annoying, and their processes will be complicated and annoying. And actually trying to do something about the language that they use is one of the first steps to fixing quite a lot of the problems that are caused by complexity. So I was absolutely delighted when I saw this article. And it's it's a it's a it's a relatively short article. It's only going to take you about two or three minutes to read. But the thing that really stood out for me were a couple of things that that uh, JP said. First of all, his wife works in marketing, and she's almost got to the stage now when people ask her what her job is, she doesn't tell them, or she'll make something else up, or she'll be vague because she just cannot find a way of describing marketing in a way that people can understand easily. And, you know, that's actually quite worrying, isn't it, Pascal? And, and we probably have found ourselves in a similar boat over the years as well. What he also then goes on to say is, have a look at other professions. And he, and he uses the legal profession here. Now, Yes, you could argue that the legal profession is awash with complicated language, but at least what they've done over the years is defined what each of these words that they use means. And in, in reality, a lot of those words have actually been tested in court, um, which is probably why they use these words so often, because they've been tested in court. So what he's saying is in the legal profession, whilst the, the language might appear complicated, at least it's actually fully defined. Whereas marketing, you know, Ask anybody in the world what a marketing strategy is, and you'll probably get a whole host of different answers, as many different answers as the, as the, as the many people that you ask. You know, what is a marketing plan? You'll get loads of different answers. What is digital marketing? You'll get loads of different answers. What's a product proposition? You'll get also. So he's just absolutely saying that there isn't a strict definition of all of these marketing terms that we use day in day out and if all of us have different interpretations of 
what they actually mean. No wonder it's really complicated for people out there to, to actually get their heads around. And then he says, and this is the final bit, it's when you actually wrap all of that ill-defined defi- Ill stuff if you then wrap it up with management speak, gobbledygook, and buzzwords, it just becomes almost like a pantomime. And, and I'm actually going to read out this this paragraph, which just made me laugh. And I, I apologise in advance, there is a swear word in this par- paragraph. So, today, managers uncritically regurgitate consultancy lingo because they believe it is how executives speak. Marketers adopt management speak because they want to appear senior. The poor sods who actually have to do the work, meanwhile, comprehend little of it. The customers understand fuck all. (laughs) So absolutely on the page with JP's article here. Really enjoyed it. It did make me laugh, but also made me slightly sad as well, Pascal. This is a wonderful addition to the content spotlight, and I think the timing is is fantastic as we are returning to work and so on. I agree with all of it. I've experienced all of it myself. I was guilty of it as well. I remember vividly, and that was such a wonderful wake-up call, although at the time it was very painful, in the early 2000s, presenting the year that was, you know, as you do. And here I was with my PowerPoint slides and and the animations and presenting the amazing work we did on the web and and using all sort of uh, jargon and acronyms and that kind of things. And when I was finished, I thought I did an amazing job, Roger. And there was this silence in the room. And I think it was, yeah, it was definitely the financial director who put his hand up and said, um, I think I've understood what uh, your presentation, but I've got one question for, for you. What did we get for it? And I remember at the time I thought, a typical FD, you know, here he is having a go at the marketing guy, blah, 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 blah. So I was driving home, remembering, thinking, you know, he's old sod, you know, what did you embarrass me like <laughs> this into, into the meeting? But actually, once I've come down over the weekend, I realized he was absolutely right. We got so um, kind of absorbed and charmed by particularly the newer technique, you know, remember the, the early 2000s of the web, that we forgot what it was all about, which is essentially brand awareness, selling, supporting, reputation, that kind of things. And that began for me a journey of, of rediscovering my occupation, my profession, you, yours, Roger, but also being very comfortable and confident with simplicity and also being the first one to be dismissive of the language of consultant, which I think you know the article is pointing out to you. And for me, in 2021, sadly, the digital sphere of marketing is full of compulsive liars. <laughs> there are two types of compulsive liars, Roger. Innocents, who are repeating the words they've heard elsewhere, repeating the bad advice they've heard elsewhere because they generally believe that it is true. And you've got the criminals, those who actually know for a fact that they are talking complete nonsense, but they keep repeating it over and over again on YouTube, on podcast, and more. And our profession, as I, as I mentioned to you on this podcast, it, it took decades to earn a seat at the boardroom table, and we are losing it fast. Yeah, absolutely right. And unfortunately, that's a theme that's been coming up on Two Geeks in the Marketing podcast for the last year since we've been doing the show. Hopefully, hopefully the tide will turn at some point, Pascal. So once again, a couple of really good, very topical, very important 
content spotlight. So thanks for bringing those to the table. Let's move on to marketing, tech, and apps. In this section of the show, Pascal and I bring to the table some technology that was caught our attention over the last week. Could be an app, could be a gadget, could be a platform. Pascal, hit me with your technology. Right, Roger. I think I may have found one of the simplest and most powerful podcast setup ever. Well, until the next time there's a new tech (laughs) and a new bit of software. So uh, whilst I'm saying that this is a podcast tech inspired by the the article that we reviewed on Content Spotlight, I believe this is the setup for uh, Zoom Teams meetings. It could be set up for uh, doing interviews, anything that requires good audio. Now, you and I have mentioned the company Rode, R-O-D-E, uh, on many occasions, and, and they, they, they deserve you know, the accolade for the work they've done in creating the, the hardware and now the software that we need to be good audio producers. So I want to give a shout-out to a not a new microphone, but one that's received a wonderful and welcome price reduction. This is the Rode NT-USB Mini. Now, this is a perfectly formed little microphone you'd be very surprised and people could be very dismissive thinking this is far too small this is there's no way this will perform well and actually it really packs a punch i've read all the reviews i've listened to the many tests you can sometimes you know watch and listen to on youtube and this is a microphone that really has studio quality for less than a hundred pounds and that is pretty exciting because you know the, the the barriers to entry is getting lower but not only would you then have a good microphone, the Rode NT-USB Mini, but it comes now with a recently launched software called Rode Connect. And Rode Connect is a free software solution that can allow you to literally control the quality of your audio. So all the things you and I have had to learn over the years, you know, the low and high pass filters, the the, the, the bass boosters, the treble um, boosters and so on, the noise reductions, all those things, is included in Road Connect. It's a free software download and literally understands that you have the Rode NT-USB Mini plugged onto your, your laptop. But also it has all the features from the famous Rodecaster Pro. So you mm. could have pre-recorded audio stings, you could have pre-recorded adverts, you could have pre-recorded interviews. I do have checked, and I'm pretty sure, I'll put the link in, in the show notes that you could also um, link your phone via Bluetooth to have a guest. You can do all sort of things, really, uh, a full-on kind of podcast production unit for free by buying the microphone and downloading the free software. Now, if I may, as somebody that has bought <laughs> and paid full price for the Rodecaster Pro, I'm a little, a little, you know, sore here because let's be frank: the Rodecaster Pro was a big investment for my business. And then I bought all the different microphones I'm using today as a year or two new setup, the Rode Podmic. And I'm reading and kind of singing the praises of this new kind of offering from Rode, but also thinking that's just a little, uh, you know, harsh for the poor people like me and, and others that we know who have invested to the tune of a thousand pound on getting kitted up. But we are where we are. And I wish people who are new to audio production, but also wanted to improve the sound quality of their meetings and interviews, very best of luck. 
<laughs> that made me laugh, Pascal. <laughs> but you've done audio. I'm going to do video. <laughs> now, I actually, um, I'm pretty sure I haven't gone back through the uh, previous 50 episodes of the show, but I think that I did. Um, I talked about the predecessor to the gadget I'm going to talk about today. So today I'm going to talk about something called the DGI Pocket 2 Gimbal Camera. And I think I talked about its predecessor, which is called the Osmo. Now they've decided to call this the Pocket 2 this time. Now it's an extremely small camera. It's not an action camera in the in the same um, style as a GoPro. It's more of a vlogging camera, but the unique feature of this thing is the fact that it's got this little gimbal on the top of it. Now the camera is the sort of camera you'll find in a mobile phone or a really high-end webcam. So we're not talking DSLR quality here, but we are still talking incredible quality for the price range and for the size of the sensor. But the fact that this thing has got the gimbal on it means that you can get, as Peter McKinnon would say, buttery smooth <laughs> footage wherever you go. And, you know, you can it can keep the horizon level or whatever it is. But the most amazing thing about this camera and this is the reason I reviewed the predecessor is that it can track a moving object so if you're doing a video of yourself doing a presentation say you could put this camera on a tripod and get it to track your body so if you could walk from side to side and this little gimbal will follow you to keep you in the shot whereas if you had a normal static dslr camera on a tripod you'd have to make sure you didn't wander out of the field of view so that on its own is enough to get really excited about but the second thing is that they are now selling this thing in what they call the creator combo and what comes with the creator combo believe it or not for a camera that is no more than about the size of the space that I'm making with my fingers here, it's got a wireless microphone. So imagine you're out, you're doing a vlog, whatever it is, you're doing a presentation, you could have this camera 100 yards away and you could start walking towards the camera and talking and getting close to the camera. And because it's got a wireless microphone built into it, like a road wireless microphone, which we've also reviewed here on the show, it will pick you up crystal clear absolutely from when you're 100 feet away to when you're two feet away and again that is just incredible for the size of camera now you can tell that i'm getting quite excited about <laughs> this uh, about this li little gadget and i was hoping that amazon would have delivered it to me by now so that i can actually hold it up and show you unfortunately it's not coming until this afternoon but i was so impressed with the videos and the reviews that i've seen of this camera that i have actually bought one so maybe in a future episode i will once i've played with it a bit bring it back to the show and tell you what i think of it yeah please do that I, i'm thinking my birthday is soon as well roger thank you very much because Denise was asking what do you want for your birthday and i reached an age fortunately where i don't feel like i need anything and then <laughs> of course i realized yes um i need an even bigger room to, to store all, all that extra kit but it's not incredible because for all of you and listeners who are i'd imagine content creators themselves whether you are, are on a journey of discovery whether you are obviously very advanced in your practices but the prices are going down the sizes are going down but the quality is increasing uh it, it's just a, a great time to be a content marketer 
Absolutely right. Absolutely right. Can't wait to try this. Um, and I, I was recently, Pascal, as you know, I was accosted by some security men at Waverley Station. <laughs> I, I, I was trying to take some video of some trains, which is actually perfectly legal. There's nothing wrong with it. But these two security guards with their big high vis, ja- uh, you know, high vis jackets on. Oh, you can't take photographs on this station without um, lo- uh, registering at reception and filling out a question. And I'm stood there thinking, nearly every single person on this train station, and there must be hundreds of people, if not thousands of people here, have all got mobile phones which can, which can take photographs. You're just bullying me because I've got a Lumix camera and it's a big camera. If it was a tiny camera, you probably would have left me alone. So the added advantage, hopefully, of this thing when it arrives is it's so small that uh, they won't even notice it. <laughs> this is the rule of indie filmmaking, Roger, discretion. Well, actually, you do two things. You have a very small camera, and you wear a high-vis jacket. You can go anywhere. <laughs> Fantastic. Always good to talk about marketing tech and apps, Pascal. So shall we fire up? For the first time in a few months, shall we fire up the flux capacitor, set the controls of the TARDIS, and head back in time for this week in history? And in 1888, Isman Kodak is issued a patent for his roll film box camera, the invention who launched amateur photography. And a few years later, Isman was co- coined the advertising slogan, you press the button, we do the rest. In 1990, one year before the invention of the World Wide Web and eight years before Google, the first internet search engine, Archie, is launched to index FTP archives and make finding files easier. And in 1993, Roger, the TV series The X-Files, starring David Duchovny and Gillian Anderson, debuts on Fox. It is also the number one huge cult following, with nine seasons, 202 episodes and many films to follow. Oh, and in 2008, the Large Hadron Collider, the world's most powerful particle accelerator, conducted its first test operation and reproduced the conditions that existed within a billionth of a second after the Big Bang. I always thought that Large Hadron Collider just sounds really scary. It's definitely the sort of thing that you would hear in a sci-fi movie. You press the button, we do the rest. That's a great strap line from Kodak, isn't it? I mean, I have to say, when we did the research and I timed the year 1888, that feels like a long, long time ago, Roger. But what an impact, the invention, but also the brand. I remember vividly, you know, you would buy Kodak because of the logo. Remember, you had that kind of really rich yellow with um, the red and you know if you look carefully you could see the k of kodak but you could also see the symbol of the uh, of the film that you put into your, your camera i mean you must have had a camera with, with the film you had to roll in and you had to be super careful with it as well yeah that we my dad used to have a kodak instamatic camera where it the actual film was almost in like a, a plastic bracket that just used to fit into the back of the camera um but yeah you could also get the ones where you had to literally put the spool of film in and then drag it across the um the shutter and then twirl it up in the other side and then wind it and crank it mm. there was something really the ritual of the winding and cranking the noise you know you, you, I mean, you felt like you were empowered to go out and create obviously back in the days you, you had to be careful it was only 24 or 36 
uh, photos. You, uh, I, 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 you know, of course, we're very nostalgic here, but I'd imagine people were not as wasteful as they are using mobile phones nowadays. <laughs> no, you certainly couldn't take 36 attempts to get a selfie right, could you? Because that would wipe out your entire uh, your entire allocation of shots. And of course, if, you know, once you'd finished your shots, you'd have to wind the film back into the spool. And a lot of time, you actually had to send it off to get developed. You know, in those in the in the early days, you couldn't even take it to Boots to get developed. You had to actually send it off to Kodak to let them do their magic. So it's incredible how far we've come and that we can just pick up a mobile phone now and take photographs without even thinking about it. Yeah, which is why this week in history is such an important segment to you and I. It, it allows us to reminisce, but also we are where we are because of things that have happened in the past, both recent and distant. And this one feels very distant. And I would encourage you know viewers and listeners of all ages, just go online and read the story of Kodak. And if you want to as well, there is a great film, I think, called Kodak Chrome, the story of the last um, photographer. I think he was working for a magazine going to the very last Kodak studio to get an old film uh, being printed before he essentially retires with Ed Harris. And you, you get to know more about it. But for me, Kodak, it's a success story in itself as a business, but it's also the way in 1888 they already thought about branding. You know, the, yeah. the slogan, the logo that, that survived really the test of times, the, the, the loyalty to, to the community and so on. And uh, I just think that uh, it's, it's just amazing. But like you said, here we are in 2021. Really, um, we, we can do what we can do because somebody invented a camera where you could put a, a film that was rolled into a little box. Incredible. You press the button, we do the rest. And and talking about great strap lines, the truth is out there. Yes, 1993. I, I, I genuinely can't believe it's that long ago. That was the year I got married, 1993. The X-Files. At the time, probably one of my favourite TV series, Pascal. It was so good. Um, and, and what I did love about it was the, the way that they usually had an arc going through the series, which was all about government conspiracies and aliens. And, and But then they used to alternate it with a almost like a monster of the week mm. show. So it, it kept the variety going. But, you know, some of it was genuinely spooky. Some was it was genuinely thought-provoking. Sometimes it was out-and-out body horror. Sometimes it was psychological horror. And the charisma between David Duchovny and Gillian Anderson was was fantastic um, I, and you just said there I couldn't believe how many series there actually were it, it flew by and I'll tell you one thing I can remember I think it was the end of the second series ended on a gigantic cliffhanger you know and Everybody around the world was just on the edge of their seat waiting for the th third series to start and when the third series did start in America it was weeks before it was shown in the UK. And that was before the time when we could just, you know, pretty much watch television at the same time. And I remember my sister in Los Angeles <laughs> recording the first episode of Series 3 on a VHS tape, sending me the VHS tape. But, of course, in America, they record VHS on an NTSC uh, signal. So I then had to take that VHS tape to a company, a, a, a shop in Edinburgh, and get them to convert it to PAL so that we could watch it. 
And we went to all of that trouble because this series was so good, we couldn't wait for the UK to catch up and show the third series. Yeah, as I was reading the news and fumbled my way through the, the numbers because I memorised them, I just know that by heart there was nine seasons, 202 episodes, and then they did two extra seasons and two films. But the reason why it's an important addition to this, this week in history is I do believe that in 1993 they start, or this restarted this idea of fandom that existed in the 70s, I would argue, the lack of Star Trek and so on and so forth. But I don't remember before the X-Files a sense of excitement, a sense of a global following to the degree that it had. But also, you're right, it had this trap line. Do you remember the, the music in the opening credits from Mark Snow? You know, you had yeah. that kind of really eerie sound that had some little echoes of Twilight Zone and so on. And it was showing the UK on the Tuesday night. And honestly, you could have, I was almost, to the degree of unplugging the phone, there was no way it would disturb me when the <laughs> X-Files were on. Um, I, I do know that Denise, my wife, got um, many nightmares with Eugene Toombs, uh, yeah. the, among the, the many monsters that um, that was shown there. But um, yeah, a, a very, very important addition to, to pop culture. And they're still talking about doing more, uh, you know, because the characters, you're right, they're so, so engaging. We, we believe in, in their journeys, both of them. And there were some really twists and turns, some really nasty characters as well in the X-Files. Yeah, the cigarette-smoking man was uh, incredibly, incredibly evil. And, yeah, I mean, with with nine series worth of um, episodes, we could talk about the X-Files all day, but... uh, it's not actually the focus uh, of this show. And, and for, unfortunately, it's not going to form part of film marketing. But I imagine that one of the X-Files films could, in future, form part of film marketing. So, pa- Pascal, shall we move on from history, come back to the present day, and give some creator shout-outs? Please. In this section of the show, Pascal, give a shout out to some of our creator colleagues. They may be part of our networks, they may be slightly outside of our networks, but they are all incredible content creators. So, Pascal, who's in your shout out zone this week? Right, it gives me great pleasure to give Chris Nightingale a shout out. Now, Chris is the digital acquisition manager of AO.com, a brand that is well known, I think, in the UK, perhaps worldwide. And Chris and I met uh, when I was hosting a couple of virtual conferences. He was one of the speakers who, frankly, was so passionate, but also so easy to follow and, and engaging about the wonders of online advertising. And he was sharing essentially what they do and how they plan, how they execute advertising campaigns online for AO.com. Not, you know, the, the most exciting subject typically, but he just had a way to get already engaged. It was my role to introduce him on the virtual stage, to then listen, note down a few a few things to ask at the end. And literally I had a page and a half of notes from all the things that he said, but also the reaction and how we wanted to talk about it. And the reason why it is in the content creator's shout is because he recently launched a new podcast and video podcast. And you know how fond I am of new beginnings. So he's now the host of the Marketing Mini Bytes. This is a new podcast series. The link will be in the show notes. Every Wednesday, 9 a.m. declared, you know, in on, on this YouTube channel. So good luck with that. We know that consistency is important, but there's nothing like making that commitment public as well. 
And what he's doing is he's taking, uh, he's inviting people in his network to talk about their own efforts in marketing from big brands as well as personal brands. Is challenging himself and the guest to stick to a mini bite. So this is a 20 minute to half an hour conversation full of nuggets of information, full of tips and hints about how to be a better marketer. Fantastic. Now, Pascal, over the summer, when we had our week off, our month off from doing two week Geeks in the Marketing podcast, we weren't actually doing nothing, were we? We were experimenting with Twitter spaces. And you and I did a four week weekly show on Twitter spaces talking about digital events and the future of di- digital events and how they're all going to be hybrid. Now, as always, we learned quite a lot about the technical stuff, and some of it didn't go very well. We had a few issues with the sound on a few occasions. But two people helped us a little bit with the show, and they were Amanda Webb and Making Sang. Now, I think I've given Making a shout-out before on the show. She's a, a FOMO creator and helps people who run conferences to really generate FOMO around their events. And I thought I'd give both Amanda and Making a shout-out again this week. A, because they helped us with our own Twitter Space show, but B, because they are really making use of Twitter Spaces and I really like what they're doing. Now, on a Friday, Amanda does her own video show on live on YouTube. I think it's called Digital Coffee. And she'll do news items like we do in Two Geeks and a Marketing Podcast. In fact, I'm absolutely guaranteeing that just before we recorded this show, Amanda was recording her show on YouTube and she was talking about LinkedIn dumping stories as well. So definitely topical. But what making and Amanda do after the Digital Coffee Show is they then go on to Twitter Spaces to debate those topics in a little bit more detail. And it's a, it's a really good show to just jump on, have a listen Obviously, they'll invite you up to speak if you've got something to say. So, Amanda Webb, Making Sang, thank you for your Twitter spaces on a Friday. Smashing. Superb. Okay, Pascal, we've waited all summer for this. Probably my most favourite part of the show is about to come to pass. It is film marketing. The film we're going to talk about this week is one that I'd never, ever heard of. But as soon as it popped up on Amazon Prime, I was hooked in immediately. And my wife and I watched it. We thoroughly enjoyed it. And I know, Pascal, that you both watched it as well. And you both thoroughly enjoyed it. But as I say, until it popped up in Amazon Prime, I'd never heard of it before. And I think that that is interesting from a marketing point of view, and that's something that we definitely need to talk about. But before we do, why not let's watch and listen to the trailer? Boy, they say kids never come by unless they need something. Dad, I need your help. I'll get my coat. 30 years in the future. We are fighting a war. Our enemy is not human, and we are losing. We need you to fight. I will be back. I love you, Chickpea. 
Seven days from now, when you're set into that war, you won't be fighting for your country. You'll be fighting for the world. Is it all right? Yeah. Going to war. Stop talking. Listen. Sorry, I, I mean, when I'm nervous, I talk. I'm like 90, 97 on the nervous scale. That should be fun. Welcome to the future. You and your unit are now in 2051. They're everywhere. We are food, and they are hungry. Our enemy is smarter, faster, and stronger than you can possibly imagine. Do you want to see something really dangerous? I feel like literally that's all I've been doing since I got here, but okay. Within the next few weeks, the human species will disappear from the face of the Earth. Nothing we do here matters. No, that's where you're wrong. I don't believe that one bit. Together, we can stop this war from ever happening. This is my opportunity to give this world a second chance. Second chances are really hard to come by. Light him up! I'm not gonna hide. I'm gonna fight. It's not even loaded. Yeah, well, yeah, it's not loaded. It's a pressurized cabin. Why would I load it in the cabin? A bullet goes in thing and everybody's sucked out. So, Pascal, the Tomorrow War. What did you think of this one? Well, like you said, it felt like this incredible gift that came out of nowhere released on the 2nd of July around the world to all Amazon Prime Video subscribers. And, oh my goodness, like you, I saw this visual, I saw this little message that this was exclusive to Amazon Prime, I put the trailer on, and I'll be honest with you, I watched only half of it because I thought, oh, this is going to be so good, I want no spoilers. Then Denise came back from, from the shops probably, and I said, I declared, I know what we're watching tonight, <laughs> by the way, darling. <laughs> And two and a half hours, if not more, of adventure, sci-fi, science, excitement. And I thought, what a treat. July the 2nd, we're still going through whatever lockdown measures and restrictions. And it felt just um, a wonderful way to spend an evening. Yeah, it was It was a great film. Um, absolutely full of non almost non-stop action. Uh, I thought it was well acted by a fairly powerful cast actually um you know with um Chris Pratt, Yvonne uh, Stravosky from uh, Handmaid's Tale, Tale you yeah. recognize her from there. Um Sam Richardson, Mary Lynn, Raj Cub and yeah it was it, it was a time travel movie and for once, and this absolutely blew my mind, Pascal, it was a time travel movie, but instead of people coming back from the future to try and change something that's happened in the past, it was actually people from the present going to the future to change something, which was a totally different um, approach and one that I don't think I've ever seen done in a film before. But on top of that, it was a, a very well-realised monster movie as well, and the 
CGI monsters in this film were really quite convincing and therefore very scary indeed. I would agree. I mean, the for me, the standout moment in the film is when the monsters that we later understand called the White Spikes are revealed, you know, when they go down the, the, the staircase in a building that's about to collapse. And the way it's revealed felt like an old classic horror movie, in a way. And then from that point on, it just goes on. And although the film is over the two-and-a-half-hour mark, it went by so quickly. And it feels to me as well that there were some scenes that have been removed because every so often the story kind of jumps on quite a bit. Um, so I'm thinking, oh, my God, is there potentially a director's cut somewhere that we're going to be able to watch Absolutely right. Yeah, I mean, as you say, there were some noticeable jumps in the narrative, and 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 again, it was it was an action film, which which was uh, edge of the seat stuff, but also there was a genuine story um, in the background as well, which involved the two time periods and uh, the relationship between Chris Pratt the father and Yvonne Strawski uh, the daughter. I can't really say much else. Otherwise, I'll blow the plot for mm. for people who haven't watched the film. But I just I did I really like the way they had that interplay between the two characters in two different time zones, which was which was really interesting. So, so what what was your standout moment, Pascal? So I mentioned the the reveal of of the monsters in 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 the, in the staircase. Yeah. Um, actually, another one oddly, although the, the attack of the of the base. Uh, like you, I feel so nervous talking about this film because perhaps people <laughs> have not seen it yet. But the one when, for the first time ever, the people in 2021 travelled into the future of 2051, and the arrival is so brutal and so well filmed um, that it makes you realise, oh my God, this is not a film where essentially, forgive me, the heroes are going to necessarily win. There was, there was some sense of jeopardy in there. So the arrival into the future the way it was realised was also a big standout moment to me. Yeah, I mean, do you think it was... Do you think there was too many elements in the film? We've already said there was time travel, there was the uh, father-daughter relationship subplot, there was the 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 origin of the aliens subplot as well, and uh, obviously the, the many, many battles. So you had time travel, you had aliens, you had battles, and uh, was there too much? For me, it, all. it was probably... a. We are in 2021. We, we can cope as, as uh, consumers <laughs> complex stories. I know why you're asking the question, Roger, because we know through our research but also the evidence that critics have been reasonably unkind to the movie. But guess what? Mm. Viewers loved it. And this, mm. as we'll discover in a moment, became the highest-ranking streaming movie in the world. Yeah, and, and deservedly so. So, Pascal, there is a big problem, though. Because as I've said, I knew nothing about this film until it appeared in my feed on Amazon Prime that day that we actually watched it. So that, to a certain extent, suggests that they got the marketing wrong. So what did they do? Yeah, well, interestingly, when you and I decided to go for this film, not knowing much about the marketing, but only because we love the movie... Uh, there was some trepidation, I must confess, Roger, because I thought, my God, are we going to do the research and find nothing? Because this is a movie that first was announced in November 2019 or 20, if memory serves. And then there was a pandemic. There was all sort of thing going on. And the first time people knew this movie existed, if somehow, by accident, you stumbled upon the trailers in April 
of 2021. But ultimately, the the announcement, you know, was very much the 15th of June, two weeks before the release on Amazon Prime. People got to know about mm. it. So, but when we did the research, you and I, and when we went on the official social media network, I realized, you and I, that the marketing campaign was quite significant, but somehow mm. may have been missed. So to begin with, I uh, always pay attention, of course, you know this, to what's happening on social media, hoping that we can learn some lessons. And I will say that the use of Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram is full of great examples and lessons. So yes, they had clips from the movie, but they focused on themes like the humor side of the movie, or the action, or the science, or the sense of jeopardy and danger. They also spotlighted the characters, but they also did, and I need to do some research, very similar things that they did on the um in, uh, Invisible Man that we reviewed. This idea of animated the text, or the captioning of the voice, but using animation in, in terms of the calligraphy. They also did some static photo um, graphics on social media, focusing on the stars, on the viewing figures, because ultimately, Roger, whereby in the past, movies will claim the, the revenue in dollars, euros, and pounds. They couldn't do that because this was for the subscribers. We already paid to watch mm. this film, so they had to use the viewing figures, which was, was the first time I've seen this, and the rating, which is why they could claim that they were one of the, the highest-ranking streaming movie in the US first and then the rest of the world. But they did all the things. They retweeted all the reviews and reaction from the fans. If there was interviews of the stars and the filmmakers on other platforms, they were done shared on social media. There was behind-the-scenes clips. There were spotlights on the special effects and green screen. They also had a fun quiz where they had kids asking science questions from their their kind of classroom or textbook. And the stars didn't know, for example, how many planets there were in the solar system, or they didn't know, you know, things that most kids would know, so they were embarrassing themselves, almost like the, um, you know, the Haribo advert of sort. And then they also had <laughs> on social media a little fun game, a very simple game of a video, whereby you had almost this kind of roulette-type things, um, um, and you would pose the video to find your 2051 destiny, I'm glad to say yeah. that according to this game, I will save your life, Roger, in 2051 <laughs> against the White Spikes. <laughs> Fantastic. Now, they really pulled um, the, a rabbit out of the hat with their PR stunts for this movie. Now, again, you know, we weren't aware of this, but that doesn't mean that they weren't impressive. Uh, so all sorts of... I think they, they tried to build up quite a lot of hype around the alien. Now, as you said, they're called White Spikes. Very, very striking design, CGI. Very, very frightening. And they've created all sorts of I mean, viral spottings of White Spikes in a forest near Wembley in the United Kingdom. And they even, you know organized like a fake live cargo transportation stunt where they're pretending to transport a white spike across uh, from Chile and Japan and driving them through metropolitan areas. Now, obviously, they're trying to get the fans to come out and take photographs and share them on social media, but you know, that, that, I, I love that approach. I thought that was really, really interesting, actually getting people to try and spot the monsters as they were being driven past. And, and I guess that whole sort of community that built up around those events turned into watch parties, um in addition to the virtual screenings and things like that. And I believe that uh, Chris Pratt actually organized a challenge on TikTok, um, getting eight top creators to make a video inspired by, by the Tomorrow War. And again, that just added more to the, the PR and media excitement. 
I think for me, the, the PR stunts are the one that I feel a little envious. Every so often when we do mm-hmm. the, the marketing, uh, film marketing, I feel, oh, if only we'd been in Los Angeles, we'd have seen the live cargo and the containers uh, with, uh, you know, kind of the, I think it was the tentacles of the white spikes kind of dangling and threatening, you know, the crowd. Uh-huh. But you're right, the, Chris Pratt has, has done a lot. And we, we, nah, he was a executive producer on the film, so maybe he was encouraged to do so. But we've seen more and more of the stars and the filmmakers using their own social network to push out messages, but also to be the instigator. You mentioned the TikTok challenge. It was also present when they did some advanced screening and screening parties for the the armed forces and he was there via zoom to welcome people uh, they organized countless virtual screenings for uh, magazines because ultimately what would have happened in, in the past roger and i mean before the pandemic people would have been invited to screenings at cinemas but they couldn't mm-hmm. do that, obviously, so mm-hmm. they organized virtual screenings instead. And some of them were sponsored or in partnership with charities that were known both nationally and internationally. So I think that the PR was really, really good. I mean, the one that got my attention as part of the research when they created two things, a retro um, game, our Space Invaders, but you were the white spice, so you were killing humans, which I thought <laughs> was, a, was an interesting angle. And you could play the game. Um, I was very rusty because when I played it, um, I remember playing Space Invaders and doing quite well, but I didn't do so well, much to the advantage of the humans. But the one that I was, again, a little envious, Roger, is that if you took part in a PR campaign, you could also win a survival kit. (laughs) <laughs> and essentially you'd be sent a rock side with lots of things you would need from bio, um, walkie-talkies, glow sticks, blankets, and more to survive the alien invasion. I mean, the, the, love it, love it. Genius stuff as well. And um, it's a real shame that yeah. a lot of this passed, passed us by in the UK because it does seem to be extremely US-focused. I, mean, I, I don't know, did we just miss it completely or was it a, a flaw in the plan? Uh, is it a flow in the plan? Uh, I mean, if I feel guilty to criticise the, the marketing uh, team and their decisions because, you know, we're not part of, of the briefing sessions and so on. But yes, it feels very US-centric. I mean, for example, another thing they did in the US was during, you know, just before and during the release of the film, if you'd all the things on Amazon, which, as we know, was the distribution, the, the streaming platform, you could receive uh, boxes which were branded to Royal War. Um, and people literally were ordering items on Amazon just to get a box um, because fans had to collect things, you know. So that, that was quite interesting. But for me, the, the one thing that, as I'm stepping back a bit from the, uh, the enjoyment of the film and being uh, putting my marketing hat on, I will say that it feels as though suddenly the marketing didn't claim uh, its style. You know, the, the, the calligraphy of, of the posters um, the poster themselves, you know, very blue. You can't quite make out what you see and so on. And it feels, it doesn't feel rushed. I think there's not a commitment to a tone of voice or something that you and I could have seen other movies done because this could have been the next Jurassic Park, frankly, in terms of the iconography, in terms of the style, the lettering and so on. And it feels just okay. And there wasn't an official website. Yeah. Uh, email marketing was a bit lax and they stopped doing the social media quite quickly after the um, the film had been released so some massive wins definitely some massive wins some incredible creativity and and, and a lot of attempts to build community around some of the events that they put on but it just seemed to then 
sort of, as you say, it didn't have the cohesiveness of other marketing campaigns and it, it effectively fizzled out quite quickly. Yeah, if you look on social media, the last post across both the Twitter, Facebook and Instagram is 30 July. Bang, that's it. Yeah, there's there's yeah. no more. And and well, you know that, it, and people, viewers and listeners will know that this is my regular moan about no official website because I think it's so important for a film like this one, particularly Roger, when they are talking about making a sequel, for this for this to be to have a hub for the fans where they can actually gather all more information. They can you know ask people to post their selfies with with the cargo with the alien. Uh, they can ask people to even suggest take part in games, send their scores, you know, or send a picture of their 2051 destiny predictions and that kind of things. And, and I think that's where maybe you and I, because we've been able to explore now over 50. Um, film marketing campaigns, we can see and join the dots a bit more. And I'm thinking, for a movie that gave people a two-week notice and blew our, mind, blew our minds, really, you can't deny that this was a wonderful uh, gift, you know, a summer blockbuster for all, all the fans. But you've got to ask the question as to, are we still in a, in a position where then they move on very quickly to, to the next project, which is also something that we are all guilty of as content creators, yeah? We released the latest podcast, the latest video, and we move on to the next thing. And is it still something that uh, is to be resolved for you know content marketers out there? I think you're absolutely right. Maybe, you know, this was... Um, because of the pandemic as well. This was a film that was being entirely launched on a streaming platform, and maybe they just felt that that was the approach they had to take, you know, dive in, do a lot of stuff, and then disappear. Mm. And may maybe they'll have learned the lessons that actually maybe we should have stick to, stuck around a little bit longer and continued with the um, impetus, continued with the... Um, yeah. Momentum that we'd built up and carry on. So, so like we're all, we're all learning all the time, aren't we, Pascal? I say that all the time. I never say I'm an expert because I'm always learning day to day. Hopefully, they've learned some lessons from this marketing campaign so that when Tomorrow War 2 or whatever it might be called comes along, that maybe they won't repeat some of those mistakes again. Indeed, and we call them mistakes, Roger, only because we we don't have the information, we don't have the brief, yes. and and the, and the project plan. But for me, they, they're probably missed opportunities as well as as being mistakes. So, uh, people from Paramount Pictures, if you're listening to this podcast, just get in touch. We've got lots of ideas for you to make sure that your next campaign uh, works. But can I just finish on really applauding the PR campaign? The PR stunts are amazing. They give us lots of ideas as as brands, both business brands and personal brands. And and I still feel that what a treat that was to watch this film over the summer. It was great. It was great. Definitely one to rewatch as well, probably in the not too distant future. Well, Pascal, we had a month off. We're back. That was episode 51. Two Geeks in a Marketing Podcast is as strong as ever. Really enjoyed talking through all of our different sections, content spotlights, film marketing, etc., etc. So thank you once again for being such a fantastic 
co-host. And thank you to everybody who watched and listened to Two Geeks in a Marketing Podcast. We really do appreciate you taking the time to watch and to listen. Don't forget to subscribe. Leave us comments either on the YouTube channel or on Twitter or wherever you want to get in touch with us. And tell us which films you'd like us to review in the future. So until next time, go out there and make sure that your marketing is done right. I was Roger Edwards and he was Pascal Fintoni. Thank you.